Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Good morning, all you beautiful souls. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Uh, As you know, a big chunk of this show is being an aggregate for healing modalities and also for services, for resources. So I look all over the planet and usually end up in the States (laughs) and uh, to find out what's going on down there and who's doing it and what's going on. And I have on the show with a frozen screen, I can hear him, but I, he's, he's frozen right now, uh, C.J. Jemison. C.J., thanks for joining me, man. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, yesterday, we, we took a crack at it. The sound wasn't working out, but you sound good today. Wonderful, wonderful. Glad to be here. For our video audience, you're frozen right now, but that'll probably sort itself out. Is your, tone, is your phone uh, shut off or something, or...? Mind up. No, it's looks like like it's working on your end. Doesn't matter. Audio is working. It's all that matters. So, uh, the reason that I reached out to you as I was poking around on LinkedIn is uh, the American Addiction Centers. So, one thing that I know, and and I'd like you to see if you agree or not, I think you will, is that you can't have, I've never seen addiction without trauma that's fueling the addiction because addiction always seems to be a coping mechanism for trauma um in the work in the work you've done so far how bang on is that or am i completely off base that is you're not definitely not off base at all that is a thousand percent um very accurate that's one of the largest like underlining um reason why the addiction you know is present because when you look at You know, and we'll get into this deeper, I'm sure. But, you know, when you look at the trauma and the responses and kind of what goes on, individuals that suffer from trauma, they they don't know how to handle that. They don't know what to do. So here comes a substance as a way to cope. Well, our healthcare system as well. I mean, in Canada, it's public health, but uh, not for mental health. You know, mental health is not under the public system. So if um, there's something that you need to work through, it's out of pocket. So either you have a decent job that provides you with uh, Blue Cross benefits or you're on your own. So it's a a lack of resources that turns people to addiction because where the hell else are you going to go? If the only thing that makes you feel better is a bottle or a shot of heroin or or whatever a person's poison is, I mean, it makes perfect sense that that's what you're doing if that's the only relief that you can possibly find. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, that relief, you know, over time or sometimes immediate for some people, but unfortunately, it's like a real horrible slippery slope. And, you know, the addiction takes over a person's life and it's just you're spiraling. And then you go get help. But you make a really good point. Um, you know, our healthcare system has to do better. But that's what I love about, um, you know, the American Addiction Center and working for Desert Hope. You know, we we treat co-occurring, so we're not only we're going to just focus on the addiction piece, but we're going to take care of your mental health as well. There's, uh, I'm hearing a lot of rattling around there uh, that's coming through your microphone. So I'm not sure what's, uh, just so you know that I can hear that. Um, is there any pushback within the academic world that you've seen? Like, is, is there still a chunk of holdouts that um, are not accepting that trauma equals addiction? Hmm. In the academia world? Yeah, that you've seen. 
Honestly, because uh, I definitely uh, work in academia as well, um, and I work in a department that's in human services, that's in, uh, you know, the medical. So I would say that the university that I work for has done an amazing job, you know, of bringing that to attention, bringing that attention to the students and uh, and staff that maybe you don't have no idea or don't work in the field at all. But we are doing a wonderful job of bringing out awareness. So I haven't seen it on my end personally. I guess, but I don't want to. What are the reasons okay. I asked CJ? Hey, you're back. Uh, you were, it was just a frozen <laughs> screen till just now. Oh, now it's frozen again. Oh well, whatever. Um, one of the reasons I ask is that there's still this um, in all of psychiatry, not psychology, but in all of psychiatry, there's still the BS that uh, depression is a chemical imbalance in your brain although there's never, ever been any science um, showing that. It, would, it was just a, a hypothesis like 60 years ago or whatever it was, and they ran with it. But mm-hmm. it's, it's bullshit. Uh, not only mm-hmm. is there no science proving it, there's science disproving it. That mm-hmm. um, any dopamine or uh, levels that are up or down, that is the effect, not the cause of, right. uh, of the depression. Trauma is the cause of the depression, that or a hungry brain. Um, so like if your brain is starving for food because you're you're not you don't have a diet that um, is healthy enough, or you don't have the correct supplements, then your brain isn't working as well as it could. Mm-hmm. Um, by having the right nutrients, gets your brain working right, and that by itself can alleviate a pile of anxiety uh, symptoms, depression, things like that. But um, all the holdouts, like, because all of psychiatry is based on, we'll just give you some dopamine (laughs) or some SSRIs. SSRIs. They don't work. That's very true. That's very true. And that that has been the the history, and you are absolutely correct. But I, I do feel, and this is only from a personal perspective only, but I do feel that uh, we're getting better. But unfortunately, so many people have to suffer before our eyes become like open, like, oh, okay, then maybe this is not working. <laughs> Let's try something else. So, you know, I, I do feel like the mental health field is getting better, but there's so much more that needs to be done. In your schooling, because uh, we haven't said it yet, so our audience doesn't know, you're working towards your PhD. And yes, um, <clears throat> in your studies so far, are, is there any talk about any up? coming and, and new therapies or modalities that are interesting or that make you feel hopeful that like, Hey, we're going in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things, uh, <clears throat> cause right now I'm working towards a PhD in clinical psychology. So my goal, once I walk across that stage and pass all the licensing things, uh, my goal is to become a clinical psychologist. And so I will say with two years being in, uh, the great thing about my professors is that they actually work in the field. They're not uh, just uh, researchers at a university. They're actually on the ground running their psychologists. They're seeing um, people each and every day on top of teaching wonderful students. So I would say uh, they talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. I just took a clinical psychopharmacology class. Of course, that was all about medicine, of course. But one thing I did appreciate about the professor is that she indicated that she she really wasn't on pushing medications because sometimes they don't work. She (laughs) She was very honest. I'd never seen a professor so honest about that and I'm really believing that she is basing it on what she has seen prior to taking a similar clinical psychopharmacology class with my masters and it was just like if it's not medicine then that's all it is medicine is the only way (laughs) I've got to finish the book it's run here somewhere but uh, I've started I haven't finished it Uh, the book is lost connections have you heard of that I haven't Uh, Johan Hari I'll grab it after. But um, in Lost Connections, um, he's a journalist that goes through his, shares his story of a lifetime of dealing with depression. And when he finally found um, uh, the meds, he's like, yay, this is great. 
Um, and then, of course, like everybody else, they he needed more meds and then more and then more and then more and because it became less and less effective. So he started doing some digging and some and some looking and some research before he realized, oh, my God, this is the placebo effect. Yes, and yes. it's only the placebo effect. Uh, SSRIs, um, all of them, have never been shown to be more effective, more than 1% more effective than the placebo effect, and only for a short period of time. And uh, so, okay, if you're only 1%, uh, and this is with the most generous of stats, if you're only 1% more effective than a sugar pill... <laughs> You know, then you're junk. You you don't work. Um, and yet, like the all of psychiatry, I don't know if there's any other um, drugs that are out there that, that actually do work. But um, I mean, we we've got to do better. Yeah, and one one of the things uh, <clears throat> going back to your original question, you know, when we look at treatment, a lot of holistic, you know, more mindfulness. Um, I noticed that. Uh, with being in school, we talk about uh, talk about that. We talk about alternative medicines, whether it's through um, supplements uh, with vitamins, whether it's just through holistic treatments, through mindfulness, meditation, um, yoga, you know, moving your body, getting the dopamine uh, flowing in your brain properly. Like we're, they were talking a lot about alternative medications, so I thought that was pretty cool, you know. I really thought that was cool. Yes, of course, you know, we're going to talk about medications and, you know, medications do work for some people, not for all. But across the board, all medications you take, you develop a tolerance. So, of course, the same amount you were taking in the beginning would not be the same amount you're going to have to keep taking. So, of course, it's going to increase, increase, increase. So I'm glad that we're looking at things more holistically. Are there... Any, like while while you're doing the schooling, I, I would be surprised if they're actually talking about the things that I know work. So, in I don't know what episode we're on here, two fifty three, maybe two fifty four, but it, when I talk to people that have actually been through a program or have adopted a new practice in their life for several months, so that they they've actually had time to see the results. Uh, the things that work are meditation, psychedelics, and um, and and community-based things. Uh, anything that has you in touch with who you are and gives you brings you self-awareness as to how your energy affects others, which increases your self-awareness, and that's what equine therapy does, at least from my experience. Um, so all these things work because they bring self-awareness of, yes, I'm injured. Yes, I have, my injury is affecting those around me. And now I understand how they are. Because most people are walking through life, if they're injured um, uh, or ill, they're walking through life blind. Because that's one of the things that uh, the injuries or illnesses do, is that they blind you from, from reality and they, they shut off your self-awareness so you don't even know that you're the asshole you have no idea that you're the asshole right and you and you tell somebody that they're the asshole and they don't believe you (laughs) which is why um typically you you hear the rock bottom stories where there's just no avoiding it that's why rock bottom works it's like okay i can't hide from this anymore this is me (laughs) i did this oh my god and um I don't even know where I was going with that, CJ, uh, other than our, I'm listening. <laughs> the, the things that work the best are not the things that I have access to through Veterans Affairs, I guess is where I'm going from. So is that um, been part of your schooling so far, these things, uh, quote unquote, alternative treatments? I call them the effective ones. <laughs> you know, uh, do you think psychology is going in that direction to try to be more effective and embrace the things that work? Absolutely. I would, I would honestly say that just, you know, what I have just seen in the field, like I mentioned previously, the field is changing and I feel like it's changing in the right direction or is there vast improvements needed? Absolutely. But I'm just grateful for the fact that at least we're moving there. At least we're talking about 
things alternative. I don't remember anything but my master's. I have a master's in psychology with an emphasis on on addictions. And I don't remember anything but that degree, anyone talking about anything holistic, mindfulness, alternative medicines. Not not at all. And I graduated. When did I graduate? Uh, 2015 with that degree. And no one talked about anything like that. You know, at and, all. And yet there you are with a master's degree, at least six years of school and the efficacy of talk therapy. And this is, I get these numbers from all over the world. Um, all, every time I get the numbers when it's actually uh, studied and it's usually hidden numbers because nobody wants to admit it. Uh, the efficacy of talk therapy ranges between 12 and 16%. That's it. And that depends on what you mean by success. That depends on what your definition of efficacy is. That those might be generous numbers, but the numbers I hear are twelve to sixteen percent for talk therapy. So that's not good enough, right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know. And investing a six-year education for twelve to sixteen percent, uh, some of that is the practitioner, some of that is the modality, most of it is a blend. Um, but mm-hmm. are, are those numbers that um, that that you were even aware of? Yeah, I was not aware of that. I was not aware of that. But I I can I believe it though. <laughs> without doing my own without doing my own research. And I think a lot pretend um yes, we go to school and we obtain these degrees, but I believe a lot depends on just where you stand as an individual. Yeah. You know, because I also have an obligation to outside, oh I got my degree, okay, great. But you know, to do, you know, to do my own research and see what treatment modalities are out there and, and present new things, you know, to my clients. You know, I'm really big on mindfulness. I'm really big you know, on different things like that. And I always have to stay within the scope of my practice. So I, I would never tell a client that, OK, um, don't take that medication. I'm not allowed to. <laughs> I have a license that has nothing to do with medication, so I can't even, you know, say those type of things. But I also, so what I do with my clients, you know, if they have to go see a psychiatrist, I have them, I, I do encourage them to write down tons of questions, to ask questions, please do your own research, you know, present it, you know, not just, you know, okay, if the psychiatrist says, okay, you need to take that. Okay, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about it. You know, and this is what I found, you know, to do their own research. I think that's important because it's an individual thing to. I have, um, because I've had more psychologists on the show than I have psychiatrists and, and different, uh, uh, types of therapy, uh, therapists, like people with their social work degree that took that path, uh, to, to be a therapist. And then when I have the psychiatrists on, Sometimes they play nice. Sometimes they don't. Uh, I've heard psychiatrists bad mouthing the psychologists. I've heard the psychologists bad mouthing the psychiatrists, which is the team that I'm on. <laughs> and um, uh, are you fi- uh, finding, uh, as uh, being a therapist, uh, that there there is that rivalry, that infighting between the two disciplines? You know what? Um, honestly, it wasn't until I uh, started working on my PhD that I really realized that the biggest rivalry was uh, uh, between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Because right now, okay, I'm uh, in here in Nevada. I'm a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. I'm a clinical professional counselor intern. So that means that I can, uh, you know, treat mental health, treat substance use. You know, I got those licenses to do so. So I don't. I have. I have, in my personal experience, I have never seen kind of, you know, this back and forth like between the social workers or, or the marriage family therapists. Like we are all just here to help. But among doctors, yes, just what I've seen and what I'm, what I'm you know, what I've just listened to other professors speak on, you know, psychiatry and different things like that. So, yeah, well, but not ne- among. Yeah. Next time you hear a psychiatrist, just ask him to see the numbers. What's the, what's, what's the efficacy? What's the efficacy? What's the efficacy? And what studies uh, uh, show this efficacy? Like what studies have you done to prove efficacy of what you just told me? 
Yeah, because one of one of the things I I agree, and one of the things is very interesting. Um, with being in school, I learned that uh, first and foremost, uh, I didn't know that there's certain psychologists, and depending on the state, I don't know what particular states, but um, in some states, a licensed psychologist can also uh, you know, provide medications. I didn't know that prior to um going to school here in the state of Nevada. You can't do that when you become a licensed psychologist. But in some states, some psychologists can uh, uh, prescribe medications. And then, didn't know this as well, but I didn't know um, also that, you know, medical doctors, you know, that they don't have any training or anything in mental health at all, can also uh, prescribe psychotropic medications. So example purposes, and I'm, I'm going to give the example that my professor gave, you know, I'm having a meltdown. I'm not feeling the best. I go to the ER, the psychiatrist, pardon me, uh, the medical doctor uh, provides me a psychotropic medication without even a proper diagnosis and anything. So I was like blown away, like, wow, I didn't even know medical doctors can prescribe psychotropic medications. I thought that's what we had psychiatrists for. So just very interesting. I remember sitting with my family uh, doctor when I had one. Uh, he ended up quitting and doing something else. But um, we were going through some Veterans Affairs things that I needed him to sign off at, uh, which was just weird because he's an MD, doesn't know anything about um, trauma treatment. But what he says, well, I can't comment on this because I haven't done any treatments uh, for you for, for PTSD. And I kept my mouth shut. I just kind of cocked my head to the side like, what? Frickin', what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what could you possibly do that could help me uh, for uh, a neurological trauma injury? <laughs> you know, like you don't even know what it is. You, what you couldn't even uh, begin the conversation. That is not your your scope. It's not your field, yeah. man. Right, right, but, right. It's it's yeah. That part just blew me away. It's like, wow, well, I didn't even know that. Interesting. And I, I feel like and a lot of the research is out here, so I'm not just uh, uh, saying things out of top of just my opinion only, only the research is out there. But I do believe that's where a lot of misdiagnosing occurs. You know, if I can just go to the emergency room and my regular medical doctor who is not even my primary doctor can give me a psychotropic medication without, yeah, that's pretty scary. Yeah, it's a little disturbing, that's for sure. It's like going to the dentist to get your car fixed. It just doesn't, it do, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. You know, right. like maybe your, um, my dentist can do an oil change, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure not going to have him rebuild my motor, you know. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. It doesn't make sense. Um, so you are an Army veteran. Uh, yes, sir. How long did you serve? Yes, sir. From two thousand to two thousand three. Okay. So you you did uh, that's the same here. I don't know if it still is, but uh, three year contracts for so you were non commissioned then. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, everything. Yeah, of, everything of going back in as a um, uh, with your degree and and being an army therapist, an army psychologist. You know, <laughs> I got out on a, a medical discharge because of my back. And uh, I sure thought about it, but uh, I'm okay. I'm fine. <laughs> Been there, go back. Got the, got the I, t-shirt. I, yeah, I'm very grateful, you know, for my time in the military. I'm, I really am. I joined because I uh, felt like my life wasn't going the way uh, I would have wanted it to go. And I was just doing a lot of things and I'm I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, so I'm just like uh, I need to get out of here. I need to get my life together because <laughs> this this is not going to go well for me. And so, um, after my father passed away, I'm just like you know I, I gotta I gotta get my life together. So I joined, and it, it's been a blessing. Uh, didn't really go um, far, and I, what I mean by that is basic training for Jackson, South Carolina. Uh, AIT and AIT is where you um, develop your trade and you learn your trade. So I learned uh, how to be an ammunition specialist, 55 Bravo um, at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama. 
And then from there, you know, they, you get to choose where you want to do your duty station. And, of course, I got the one that I did not choose because I want to go to Hawaii. I want to go all of this stuff. So they sent me to uh, in the dead of the cold in uh, Fort Wayne, right, Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, and that's man. Where that, I was. That, that's going all the way. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like. That's like, that's that like Canada cold. <laughs> yes. I'm just like, wait a minute. I thought. My three top choices didn't have anything to do with Alaska. Who did you? Okay. <laughs> who, who did you piss off to get that posting? Oh man, I was a good soldier. I don't know what happened here. <laughs> but but, um, but yeah, I spent my time. I did my time there, and uh, you know that's where I injured my back. But uh, yes, cold, Pro- probably from, cold. from from slipping on ice. So how long how long were you in Alaska? Oh man, for a total of. How long did I stay? How long Because my three-year contract, I would say, I can't remember the year I went from my AIT to Alaska. Maybe a year and a half, maybe. I'm trying to count all of the time because I was only in from 2000 to 2003. Yeah. But, of course, I didn't spend three years, you know, there. So. so was Alabama just for training then? Yes. All right. Did you get out and about? You get uh, is is that a nice part of the country, Alabama? And well, when oh yes, oh yes, the South. It was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. The food was good. You know, I think I had my most fun, believe it or not, in Alaska. Believe it or not, because I just found the the state so so interesting. It was so beautiful, despite the cold. It was so beautiful. Um, and it's got an energy. The, does, it's, the North has an energy, doesn't it? Like I was, oh, I've, I've, been, I've been to the Yukon, uh, Dawson City, and um, it, it has like it's palpable. You can feel it. Uh, it has a different frequency up there, and does, um, that's why there's so many people that go north, north, you know, to Alaska or Yukon. They go there to check it out, and they never leave. It's beautiful. And and speaking of never leaving, that is very accurate, good sir, because I got out in 2003, but I stayed in Alaska for two years <laughs> because it was just so beautiful. I remember the first time I saw the Northern Lights, or I think they call it the Aurora Borealis. Aurora Borealis, that's right. Borealis. You're not going to see that in Cleveland. Not at all. Man, I thought um, we were under attack through aliens. I remember saying, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, the aliens do exist. I think it's good to do your research when you live in a state. <laughs> a, f- um, a good friend of mine grew up in Trinidad, and uh, then he came up to Edmonton. So Edmonton is uh, pretty high up. It's the it's the most northern major center in Canada, as far as like a population of a million kind of thing. Um and uh, so once you get up to Edmonton, if you're, if you're lucky, you're going to see the Northern Lights uh, a couple of times a winter. <laughs> it was a, one of those years where there was a lot of Northern Lights going on. And him and I were uh, downtown and he saw the Northern Lights and they were banging, like they were popping off. And he was shitting bricks. He's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Yeah, he didn't know what to think of that. I had a good giggle. I didn't let him. Uh, I, I didn't didn't let him go for too long though. Before I explained it to him, he's like, "So we're not going to die?" He's like, "No, no, we're, we're we're okay, we're okay, buddy." It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But yeah, it was awesome. It's beautiful. I um, because in the military, we would do our PT in the snow, so with no boots. You know, we have tennis shoes on early 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning, just running, you know, slipped on some ice. That was the end of my military career. I was right. That's what I said. Is that how you hurt your back? You slipped on the ice yeah. and son of a bitch, I was right. That's dangerous well, that stuff. That. Oh, man. I'm like, what? I mean, we were all like gliding but like this. I'm like, don't y'all got this? ice in Cleveland? You don't know how to walk on the- <laughs> Like, man, I guess oh. it's different than Alaska ice. Oh, see, we, we were, we were, we were like running, like, and like we're all the only person who was aligned was the drill sergeant. I was like, how did he do this? 
because we're all out of formation. We're all slipping on ice. Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it, it takes a while to learn how to to deal with that. You got to clench the butt cheeks when you're on the ice. Short <laughs> short steps with the clenched ass. That's how you do it. Man, I wish somebody could have told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't have any oh, uh, Canadians up there to help you out. Man. Um. So the. The American Addiction Center. Uh, how this is a series of centers? Then, like it's it's oh. they're, they're they're all over the place. How like how widespread? What's the scope of this uh, organization? I would say because uh, I don't know the accurate numbers, you know. So please forgive me for that. Uh, I'm just a therapist. <laughs> I just you know I don't know the data and everything, but I do know that we're heavily populated, and I would say over maybe over. 10, maybe over 10, 20 states. You know, we're, we're in, um, I know we're in Texas. Um, yeah, I won't go through all the states, but I know that we're heavily populated. We are. Is there a, a portion of the American Edition Centers that focuses specifically on first responders and veterans? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the organization that I, you know, that I'm under, um, well, under American Addiction Center is Desert Hole Treatment Center. I'm actually, um, the therapists for our program. So we have a first response, we call it salute to recovery, um, which is also like our battalion program. So we do specific groups just for veterans and first responders. So they're like separate from our general population groups. Our general population groups are of course, anyone that is not a veteran or a first responder. And so um, it's almost just like separating uh, civilians (laughs) from the military. So, but and, yes, sir. And do you find that it's uh, helpful for you when when dealing with veterans and first responders that uh, you have a little bit of a military background? Is that helpful? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because they feel like, okay, you know, this therapist truly, truly understands. You know, I'm in, re- I'm in recovery as well. So then that's like a double. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, not only did he serve, but he knows how this addiction can just grab you by the neck and strangle you and throw you down and the recovery can build yourself back on up. So, but that, you know, the battalion group is, is just absolutely amazing. It really is because you get to see just, you know, the trust level, they're open up and share more because they are around their peers that understand. One of the healing modalities is the most powerful and is also one of the most dangerous if you do it wrong is peer support. And uh, experts from around the world that I've spoken to on the topic and my own personal experience, um, peer support done right, like if that's not part of the solution, if that's not part of moving forward, uh, you're missing out on, you're missing at least half the story, probably more. Because the injury of, well, any mental health issue, but... Uh, trauma injuries in particular cause disconnection. They cause disconnection from you and the person that used to be from yourself and your, and your self-perception disconnection from the future that you thought you would have disconnection from your family, from, uh, from other relationships, uh, disconnection from your coworkers. Uh, this is why people isolate themselves because they just feel like they're a square peg in a round hole and only through a properly run peer support group and I say properly run because uh, it's um, it's a vulnerable sector thing and if you if you if you get it wrong if you got the wrong person uh, steering the ship it can be really bad because it, you'll create sanctuary trauma and that's not a good time mm-hmm. yeah, so right. so damaging so um, there has to be protocols in place to uh, as best as you can avoid sanctuary trauma and if uh, that's the facilitator creates sanctuary trauma. You got to um, either fix them or kick them out immediately because yeah. the yeah. amount of damage that can be done, because you don't reach out for help twice, typically. Right, right, you know, right. If your hand gets bit once, you don't try to feed the dog again. Um, like you throw it on the floor and hope for the best. <laughs> right, yeah. right. No, I agree. I agree. And that that's one of the wonderful things about the, the battalion program. You know, it's 
course, I'm talking about addiction. Of course, I'm talking about trauma, mental health. Um, you know, we talk about a vast amount of things, but what I really enjoy, um, we have a, we call it our peer support group, and it's literally being ran by, um, for like an hour, uh, ran by one of our uh, clients that may choose to want to talk about different subject matters. And I tell you this, that right there to, and I've always observed kind of how they do it. And I tell you, man, it's such a, it's such a beautiful thing because just to see your peer in front, you know, kind of leading the way and opening up the floor to things and talking about their personal stories, man, it, it goes a long way. Well, that's the power. That's the power of recovering out loud. Um, that's uh, one of the taglines I use all the time for the show. When you recover out loud, you're lending other people your courage because admitting that you're injured ain't easy, especially if you were the superhero, the one wearing the cape, you know, that dun, 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 here comes CJ and Mark, you know, <laughs> got their cape, got their capes on. And if you are strong enough to be vulnerable uh, and to show your vulnerabilities, that lends strength to the others. A good friend of mine, uh, Theo Fleury, he's a NHL hockey star. When he started uh, talking about his childhood, um, he was raped by his coach like 150 times. Mm-hmm. And when he's out speaking and he says, yeah, I was raped by my coach when I was a kid 150 times. Um, having the strength to say that, what he was overrun with the me too's people have come up to him and quietly say, thank you for saying that because me too, me too. Right. Then it's not the dirty little secret anymore. It's the secrets that kill us. The secrets are just cancerous. That's true. That's true. And the, the battalion group, it creates that safe place. The things that people share is because they feel comfortable to share those things. And I never make it seem like, okay, you are forced to say whatever. I always tell people just, if you feel it and it's coming up, this is a safe place to be able to share those things. And like you said, with the Me Too, one person begins and it's like, here comes like a domino effect. Like, wow, yeah, yeah, that resonates to me too because when I was, yeah, and then the next person, yeah, me too, because I remember, you know, this in the military had happened. Like, people are talking about things they would never, you know, and looking at the military culture, and even with first responders as well, you know, there's the, you have to be strong and at all times, and you are not to talk about these type of things because, you know, sometimes that persona is that you're weak and different things like that. All of that is thrown into trash in our groups. <laughs> For sure. Well, you got out 19 years ago, and uh, but you're still in touch with people that are in the military. I, I got out longer than that. I got out in 95. Um, but um, I've seen changes in the Canadian military, significant changes. they still got a long way to go. But um, people are able to put their hand up and ask for help now. I think there's still the idea that, oh, man, this could be a career killer. And maybe it still is, but they're trying to work towards getting to a place where you can put your hand up for help, receive that help, and it doesn't hurt your career. might even help it. Um, From your circle, is the American military getting better? Uh, Yes. I think the, and I'm glad you asked that question (laughs) because a lot of the, the people that I work with, you know, have been out of the military for a long time, but um, I have a couple clients that are, are literally within a couple months just have gotten out. And based on, you know, the things that they have shared, it's definitely gotten much better. You know, you have that support there. They're having um, meetings on it. They're promoting it a lot. Like, hey, talk to us. We're here. And, you know, this is available and this resource is available. But I think what's what's going on, it's the individual. The individual has fears that if I say this, then I'm going to get in trouble. If I bring this up, then that person's going to get in trouble. I think that's like the biggest, biggest part. It's just because they're saying, hey, you can talk to us. We're here. But it's kind of like, 
the fear of like, I'm not going to talk about that this happened. I'm not going to, I'm feeling this way. I'm not going to say anything about it. That's the part that we need to kind of get better on. Is that just ego or is that because they're worried about it being a career killer? Career killer is the biggest thing. Yeah. That's, that's just my own personal, uh, not a generalized statement, but just what I've seen. Well, that's all we anybody can speak on is what, what we've seen and what we've heard within our own bubbles, right? Yes, sir. But And I wonder, you know, land, air, sea, and you got the fourth one, the Marines. Um, I, I wonder if one branch is better than the other as far as uh, being a, a place where you can say, yep, I think I need some help. Um, I got to meet the CEO of, uh, of a Green Beret battalion. Uh, up up here there for um and he hasn't followed up with me but my offer to him was that i can help you develop a resiliency program based on everything that i've done to avoid the injuries in the first place and uh, minimize them when they do happen um i can do that for sure i can do that um have you been seeing any work in the military to try to be more preventative, to try to build more resilience and uh, to get on things earlier? Because trauma injuries metastasize, like they, they, they get worse. <laughs> the longer you leave them, it's like not, um, not putting a cast on your arm when you broke, when you break your arm, it gets worse, not better. Ignoring it is not good. Yeah. I would, I would say, I would say Yes. Of course, I would have to do <laughs> my own research to know um, for certain, but just the experiences from what my clients are telling me, I can only base it off that. And so, you know, when they tell me that, hey, you know, we, you know, we have these programs, they're talking out more, that we have these resources, then it makes me reflect back only on my own uh, military service. And I was just like, wow, they didn't, they didn't have that when I, oh, wow, I'm glad that they're doing that. Yeah, because they didn't have that when I was in. You know, I kind of reflect on that in my mind as my client is speaking. So I would say yes. I would say yes. We can't. The numbers are high. I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm sure the world and the military, you know, they know what's going on. They see the stats. And I can only pray that they're, they're doing better with that and they're, you know, providing those resources and building programs based on what they've seen. I hope so. <laughs> everything always boils down to money and if they can understand that they're going to be saving hundreds of millions of dollars by having these protocols in place, by having resiliency training right from recruit training, you know, uh, matter of fact, before you even start basic, uh, to, to have a workup, like right, it's where you start is mental health awareness and, oh, uh, PTSD, the awareness if you start right from the beginning not just how to spot it in yourself but how to spot it in others but how to support that person when you feel supported the injury is instantly it takes the arrow to the balloon just by feeling yeah. supported um so starting that right from right from recruiting forward and and having it just like you take your first aid every year every year you research uh well for infantry for sure you know, and sometimes twice a year. And if we're going to go on tour, we crank that up. Like I've put IVs in person. It's all, uh, we're, we're going to prepare to for battle. Well, this is one of the things you need to prepare for. And if you don't, uh, God help you with the consequences. Um, right. Everybody talks about recruiting, recruiting. Well, what about retention? If you, hmm. if you look after uh your your troops and you look after this side of things your retention will be way 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 up and the burden on recruiting will be way 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 down and plus mm -hmm. the word gets out it's like hey no we've we're, we're better now we'll look after you through the whole cycle and we'll truly look after you so even if you get injured uh with an osi you're good like we got you and right. that would increase recruiting. More people would be uh, willing to say, okay, I'll take, I'll take a crack at that. I'll serve my country. But uh, it's just I, a matter of moving that forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I agree 110%. I, well, let's like I do said, it. I hope. It's Mark, Mark and CJ will start our consultant company. And, hey. and we'll say, hey there. <laughs> hey there, military. Listen here now. 
<laughs> this is what we, this is what we need to do right now. You know, this is how we can improve the whole system here. You know, like I said, I I hope I I just by the clients. Like I said, a lot of my clients um, that I that I see, they've been out so long. So, like I said, I have a handful that are recent, and based on what they're 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 saying, definitely more open. I don't know particularly what resources uh, that they have, but it's definitely come a long way. I would love to probably do my own research on that just to see what's available and what they're doing or talk to someone. Well, I appreciate you being on the show today, brother. It's um, uh, good to have you on. And what do, if there's one or two things that the listeners need to know about the American addiction centers and access to them and, approaching them for help like what are the what are two or three things that um the american audience that is listening right now needs to know about american addiction centers oh yes sir yes sir so that we actually do care you know that we are here that oh i don't know the number off the top of my head (laughs) but uh you call that 1-800 number that person is going to walk you through that process that person's kind of going to be able to kind of gauge and see where you are, even if it's more of a medical thing where it's like, okay, well, first uh, let's get you to the hospital first, you know, and, you know, make sure that you're taken care of. And then when you get here, you know, we, we embrace you with open arms. There's like sometimes when people that come in, you know, the fear of being judged in any type of way, those fears come into play or I don't need to be here. And, you know, we, we embrace you with love from all levels. You know, and that and that's what it's all about. To know that there's actually someone that really cares goes a long way. Yeah, because there's does. a lot there's there's a lot of facilities, man. Since and I hear the horror stories about <laughs> people people who've been to different type of treatment facilities and are just like I, I'm. I'm just I could not believe. I'm like I'm not trying to be naive here, but wow, this is really going on. Like, and you're here to get help. Wow. Some of the stories are just horrible, man. Yeah, well, sanctuary, we're not, we're not that. sanctuary trauma is a thing, and it's one of the worst. Yes, it, it is. Because it's, uh, it combines um, moral injury. It's just brutal. And um, and like I said, like the hardest phone call I ever made in my life was the first time I reached out for help because mm-hmm. I realized that I needed help. Uh, the wheels were coming off the bus. And um, had had that not been a soft place to land because it was a soft place to land um had it not been a soft place to land i don't know if i'd be alive today i'd probably be dead i I'd probably mm-hmm. would have uh eaten a bullet i would have mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because it's just too goddamn much so it is important to learn how to be that soft place to land and that is also a big chunk of what this show does is that people the better they understand the less they judge because we, we, we judge when we don't understand. We judge when we don't have empathy. So by not being judgmental, by trying to be understand, standing, or at least understanding that you don't know, <laughs> but um, it, it makes it so that you can be a soft place to land when somebody's falling. Absolutely, absolutely. Because that's, that's so true, man. Because I, I tell you, if I go to a place and I'm here to get help, and you're, you're treating me like crap, then you know what? I, the mindset kind of goes like this. Well, I might as well just go out and get high because I'm trying to get help. I've been treated a certain way, so forget this treatment, forget getting help. If this is how I'm going to die, well, I'll go out by the bottle. These are stories that I've heard from actual clients that have been in previous treatment facilities and have shared their experiences, and I'm just, because I have a passion for what I do and I care it, like, breaks my heart when I hear things like that. So I commend them for even trying to even come back into a treatment facility because it's real easy to think that all treatment facilities are just like that horrible one that they went to, but we're not. We're not. Like I mentioned, we are a safe place and we embrace you with love and people need to feel that addiction comes in and already makes you feel like crap and tears you up and then, you know, it destroys families and relationships so you come in feeling just horrible and broken. We make sure that when you leave there, you're you're upright and you feel loved and embraced. And that's what it's about. That's what we're about. One of the functions of the show is the halfway house. 
So there have been many people that have told me that as a couple or as an individual, they listen to this show and it kind of builds them up to have the strength to reach out for help. So if, if one of those people are listening today and you finally get the strength to reach out for help and you get punched in the nose when you reach out for help, just know, just know that once keep listening to the show, build up that courage again, shake it off and keep trying. Um, use somebody that's been on the show um, that so you can get to know them first by listening to the episode and then reach out to them. I've had so many or reach out to me personally and ask for a recommendation uh, so I can point you in the right direction towards a soft place to land. If you've had a shitty time in the past, reach out to me and I will put you on a path. I'll put you in safe hands. I'll, 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 put you uh, I'll show you where a soft place to land is because it's um I guess what I'm saying is don't give up if you've been a victim of sanctuary trauma it's common it sucks and it's because there's a lot of incompetency out there a lot of it and I've experienced it firsthand and it hurts but um there there are competent therapists out there and there is a soft place to land and healing happens it does so please don't quit there is hope yes there is yes sir cj stay on the line yes sir thank you for making this available thank you thank you so much for joining me today good good talk stay on the line you're listening to operation tango romeo the trauma recovery podcast for veterans first responders and their families Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.